over my years uh, in yeshiva, we were blessed to have the privilege of going on what's called Friday Mifzayim. Every Friday, the Rebbe established to take time off from Torah study and go out to do outreach. Each of the boys was assigned what we called a route. You go to a certain part of the city, you had a block of offices or homes, and you go visit the same people each week, put on tefillin, if it's a woman, give them Shabbos candles, engage in conversation, deliver a challah. And uh, it's a genius concept because it educates from 13 years old. You know, rabbi in training, it puts you right in the front seat and you get to see hands-on what it's like to deal with people that are on the other side of the world. In other words, in the sense where they're not in yeshiva, they're out in business and how to connect with them and to bring spirituality to their lives. There are people till today that I connect, I have connections with from my years in New York and Australia and Toronto um, that we went to just on Friday visitations. And uh, another interesting thing that you get is deep philosophical discussions beyond your age. Because everybody that's adults is going through stuff and they always want to know the deeper perspective and somehow a yeshiva bacher is assumed to have wisdom for the ages and so I've been in a lot of these, these conversations and like young people we get impulsive, we get argumentative, we're always trying to prove the point. Mm-hmm. So I have, some, I have some fond memories and some embarrassing memories from those times. Brilliant. But there was one question oh, that uh, I found would come up a lot, especially with people that were being introduced to Jewish ritual for the first time. People that hadn't been affiliated, hadn't been connected, grew up maybe in a different community. And it was the question of whether Judaism is a religion of conformity or a religion that's measured for each person individually. Because many people would tell me, say, hey, you want to put on tefillin? He goes, tefillin, that's not for me. I connect to God in different ways. I know Judaism is all about connecting to God, but I do it my way. Tefillin is not my way. And this would inevitably lead to the conversation of, you know, why do you think Judaism is one size fits all? Everyone's got to eat matzah on Passover and everyone's got to listen to the Megillah on Purim. Listen, I, I do Shabbat by lighting candles, but I still drive in my car. And you do Shabbat in the way that you want. How come it has to be everybody the same? And it's, it's a good question because on the one hand, Judaism is a religion of one size fits all. We all have the same 613 mitzvahs, no matter how smart you are, how not smart you are, no matter what kind of gender, no matter what kind of occupation, no matter what kind of place or culture you come from, everybody has to do all the mitzvahs. On the other hand, we're always talking about personal relevance, finding personal meaning in your Judaism, and uh, taking, taking steps according to your pace. Right? We're always talking about the don't jump too much. So... So how do we resolve? It's a, it's a very important question. And the truth is, the Rebbe would often mention this, that over history, Jewish people erred on different sides of the question. Some people went to the one extreme. They said Judaism is a one-size-fits-all and that's it. You're in the box or you're out. And this caused tremendous uh, dichotomization, tension in communities because if you weren't in it, you were out. The reform movement, Rebbe would always you know, mention this, went to the other extreme. They said, Judaism is all about you. There's no bar, there's no yardstick of truth. Everybody does what they're comfortable with. Everybody does what they think is right. 
and your Judaism is for you, by you. You decide how it works. And of course, neither of them can be fully true. It's not true that Judaism is only an orthodoxy that's very demanding and uncompromising. And it's also not fully true that Judaism is only up to you. There's a balance. And that balance is actually mentioned by the Alter Rebbe in the introduction to the Tanya, which we studied 45 weeks ago. And he repeats it in the first six lines of chapter 44. He says, I want to remind you about Judaism's balance. The Torah says in the end of the Torah, Parshat Nitzavim, four portions away from the end, that Torah has a revealed aspect and a hidden aspect. Haniglot v'hanistarot. The revealed aspect is what's called, or we'll call it, the ritual part of Judaism, or the behavioral part of Judaism, the action. That is a one-size-fits-all. When it comes down to it, doing the deed, Doing the deed applies to the greatest tzaddik and the greatest rasha, the poorest and the richest, the wisest and the brainless. It doesn't matter. But then there's the hidden part of Judaism. The hidden part of Judaism, we'll call it, in more relatable terms, the mystical, the emotional, the spiritual, the psychological parts of Judaism. Typically classified as what we've been talking about here the past couple of weeks, love and fear of God. The emotion that charges your Judaism. This is very personal. Personal. It's measured according to every... No two Jews are alike. In fact, there are as many ways to love and fear God as there are individual Jews. Because every person, based on his psyche, based on his makeup, based on his background, based on his life experiences relates and emotes to God in a different way. And by the way, this doesn't say it in Tanya, but it actually has to be that way. Because if you think about it, when it comes to the action, there's always black and white. I can ask you, it was Passover. Did you eat the matzah? It's yes or no. I, I ate it or I didn't. It was Hanukkah just now. Did you light the candles? One, two, three till eight? It's a yes or no. Action is measured by performance. So since action is measured by performance, we're all the same. But feelings, if I asked you, do you love Hashem? By definition, feelings are dynamic. Well, this morning I do like Him. Yesterday when I crashed, I didn't like Him. The other day I was feeling great. I did like Him. Today something happened. I don't like Him. I like Him more. I like Him less. It's always in flux because that's how feelings are. So feelings have to be limited by the individual. And this is the balance that Hasidus wants us to strike in our Judaism. Both are true. There's an element of Judaism which has sameness, the deed, the ritual, the behavior, and there's the element of Judaism that gets divided by the person, which is the emotional, the heart. Huh? How do we balance it? Welcome to tonight. That's our life. <laughs> and our lives. Oh, that, yeah. The first half of the Tanya, if we can generalize, was a program for the revealed part of Judaism, 
a discipline that will allow you to be in control of your thought, speech, and action on the ritual level, on the behavioral level. How to master the one thing we all want to master, ourselves. From chapter 38, which has really been our last couple of classes, we segued into the second part of Judaism, what we're calling tonight the hidden part, the heart. How to lead an inspired Jewish life. How to do a passionate mitzvah. And over these weeks, we've discovered that first, we have different capacities for experiencing emotion. Based on the level of our souls, greater tzaddikim have access to higher worlds of passion. Lower souls, like ourselves, have access to lower levels of passion, and that's okay. And then we open the spectrum. There are many different types of feelings you could have towards God. A fear of heaven, which we classified as a respect or an awe for the relationship. A love, which is a desire to be connected. We'll see in coming weeks many different types and variations within these different levels. And it was a uniquely Hasidic position that the key to feeling is the mind. And therefore, every time the Alter Rebbe brought up an emotion, he coupled it with a meditation. Think into this and you will achieve this feeling. Concentrate on this and you will achieve another feeling. Reflect on this, and you elicit another response. Because the mind is key to the soul, and every person's mind works differently, and every person feels differently, the emotions of every Jew will result to be on different levels. So that's the context which the Alter Rebbe sets at the beginning of the chapter. So I want to remind you there's two parts to Judaism. There's the behavioral part, which we've dealt with. There's the emotional part, which we're currently involved in, deeply. And we're going to be involved until the end of the Tanya. And I want you to remember the basic rule, which is that you need to think in order to feel. But now that I've said that, I want to make an exception. Chapter 44 is the exception. I'm going to give you, says the altar, I'm going to identify two types of love to Hashem that are universal. We all have them in common and we all feel them the same. So notwithstanding everything we've just said, that by definition, heart Judaism is unique to each individual, there is two loves, two ahavot, that are universal. And the reason they're universal is because they don't come from the mind. They come from the soul. And on the soul level, we're all the same. This was a couple of weeks back in chapter 32. The Hasidic version of Ahavat Yisrael stems from the fact, how do you have true love to another fellow? Because in, in the soul level, we're all the same. What divides us is only our bodies. At, at the soul, we're all, we're all one core. So the Alter Rebbe draws on that idea and says, sometimes your love to God comes from your soul, not from your mind. And when it comes from your soul, every person loves the same. Doesn't say it clearly in the Tanya, but if I may say so, what's going what's to evolve from this discussion is that these two loves are the two ends of the spectrum. The lowest 
let's call it the, um, the most material type of love you could experience and the most sublime type of love you can experience. That's where we all converge. Where Jewish souls differ are on the rest of the spectrum. But on the two ends, every Jew is the same. At the lowest point and at the highest point. What are these two loves? What are the two feelings of, again, love defined as want and connection, desire? What two desires towards God does every Jew feel? So we have number one and number two. The first love, the Alter Rebbe calls, I want you because you're my life. I want you because you are my life. Let me explain it with more concrete terms. Every human being is obsessed with their existence. It's the way we're wired. If we're not obsessed with our existence, we call that unhealthy. People who don't care about themselves or their, or their life. We're obsessed with living. It's always true. At every moment of every day of our lives, we're obsessed with self. We're obsessed with keeping ourselves alive. We're obsessed with keeping ourselves going. It's especially true when our existence is in jeopardy. This is when everybody gets in touch with how much they value their life. So to get the most extreme level when you're in a life-threatening situation, when you're up against it and you may die, you get in touch with how much you want to live. We can put it down a notch. Sickness. There's no gun to your head, but you're terminally ill. Or not terminally ill, a lighter sickness. Suddenly we start to value our life. You always hear from people that are going through this. They start reflecting on their past lives, that I live a fulfilling life. How can I improve the quality of my life going forward? And we could even drop it a notch. The Alter Rebbe says, what about after a day of fasting? You haven't sustained your body. You have this feeling of, I want to keep myself alive. I can't wait for the food. Even further down, when you go to sleep, everybody hopes they wake up. Nobody goes to sleep saying, I hope I, I don't wake up. Huh? We actually assume that we're going to wake up. Because everybody wants self-sustainment. Everybody wants to exist. Everybody wants to keep living. I forget if it was the Rebbe or the, his father-in-law who, who used to say that uh, he has many, many followers, many, many chassidim. But the ones that are hardest for him to stand are the tzaris chassidim. The tzaris. The ones that only know me when they're in trouble. When things are going well, you take it for granted. As soon as something's going wrong, Rebbe, help me, I need this, I need a blessing. My child, my money, my family, my this, my health. When things are going good, you don't write. When things are going bad, that's when you remember that you have a Rebbe. But 
gratitude for the everyday life and not taking things for granted, it's a challenge. You have to be mindful of it. Always. Rebbe would always say, there's a video, in fact, of the last dollars. I think I mentioned it last class or two classes ago. The last time the Rebbe gave dollars, the day before he had a stroke in 92. And uh, a man comes by and he says, Rebbe, you gave me a blessing three years ago for my son to be born. And he was born. Thank you very much. And the Rebbe gave him a dollar and the Rebbe gave him an additional one and said, this is for following up. Not everyone is doing so. Everyone comes with the issue, and when it's resolved, it's resolved. There's that, there's that, that famous joke about the, uh, the guy who's late to a meeting, can't find a parking spot. He says, God, if you find me a parking spot, I'll give $18, I'll give $100, $1,000. Never mind, I found one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As soon as the issue gets resolved, you go, forget it. But everybody, everybody obsesses about living. That's the truth. We all want to keep ourselves alive. Says the Zohar, says the Alter Rebbe in this chapter, if you're obsessed with your life, you should really be obsessed with the giver of your life. The life is not the end to itself. The fact that you want to stay alive and that for now you are alive should be attributed to the provider of life, to the creator of all existence. So the Zohar says, every person could, should, and does love Hashem on account that He is our life. hinted in a verse there's, a, there's a, a verse in Isaiah the prophet Yeshaya says nafshi iviticha balayla which literally means my soul desires you at night but the Alter Rebbe says you have to read it a bit differently nafshi because you are my life therefore iviticha therefore I want you I want you because you're my life and when does that typically happen? Balayla, at night. Night signifying negative times. When it's daytime, everything is good. We take life for granted. When it's the nighttime, and things are dark, and there's frustration, and there's fears, and there's problems, this is typically when we appreciate the value and preciousness of life. So the Alter Rebbe says, you have it in you. Every Jew has it in him an innate desire and connection to God on account of the fact that he is living. Get in touch with it. It's there. Wake it up. Meditate. And you'll find it. He makes a very interesting mystical uh, note. The Zohar talks about the value of waking up in the middle of the night to study Torah. Tikkun Chatzot. Many tzaddikim were known to have this custom that at midnight they would rise, say special prayers, and then learn to the morning. What's the significance of this custom? 
It's a physical manifestation of the wanting of God at night. In the nighttime, demonstrate your love to Hashem. Just like physical love. When you love somebody, you want to learn more about them. You want to know more about what makes them tick. You want to do more for them. So if you love Hashem on account that He is your life, get to learn more about Him. Learn His Torah. See what He's interested in. See what He wants from you. See what, you know, do. Do the things. And later Hasidim would interpret, they would make an adjustment. They would say, look, we're not tzaddikim. We don't have that stamina to wake up at 12 o'clock every night and stay up to the morning and, and have another productive day. But you know what? If you wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, take two minutes and study some Torah. There were Hasidim that I knew that would do this. They just passed recently. Their kids have testified. If they would wake up in the morning, in the middle of the night, they would sit down at the table, open up a book for, for a minute. I'm in the middle of the night. What does Hashem want from me? Let, me, let me? let me hear another detail of what Hashem's wisdom requires of me. And then go to sleep. There's something fascinating. Totally off topic, but it's just a, a fascinating thought, so I'll share it. Is is um, is an argument in the Talmud why nighttime was created. One opinion says, Lo ivri layla ala Night was created for Torah study. Other opinion says, Lo ivri layla ala lishinsa. Night was created for sleep. One or the other. No, like what? First of all, one or the other. Second of all, like what is this? The sages of the Talmud are arguing with night Torah study. There's got to be a deeper meaning. So the so Hasidus explains that both Torah study and sleep serve the soul. Sleep, we're taught in the Zohar, when, you, when a person falls asleep, his neshama ascends and draws new life force. It basks in the glory of God, it returns to its source, it gets a mini experience of paradise, and then comes back rejuvenated. And Torah study is a replica of that same experience. Your soul becomes united completely with godliness, godly wisdom. And, uh, and really gets a portion of what it's like to be one with God. So the Talmud wants to know, what should a person prefer? When it's nighttime, should I protect my soul, put it away in the box where I'll know it'll be taken care of? Or should I struggle down here in this world and study more and learn more and examine more? So one opinion says, put your soul away where it's safe. Other opinion says, no, stay up. If you can make a difference to your soul in this world, make that difference. This, this played out actually in Jewish history. The famous night of Matan Torah. The night of the giving of the Torah, what did the Jews do? Go to sleep. They went to sleep. And since then, what do we do? Take we yeah. stay up. Yes. Why? That's the Kabbalistic understanding of it. They wanted as a preparation for the giving of the Torah, they wanted to put their soul to be ensconced in a place of security of holiness. They said, let's go to sleep. Why should we have our soul linger down in this world even though we're so excited for the giving of the Torah? Let's put our soul away to a great place. Why? Because we want our souls to be fully ready for the giving of the Torah. Hashem said, that's not, that's not the kavanah. That isn't the ultimate intent. I want you to be in this physical world. I want you to manifest my godliness here. And therefore, as a remembrance for that, we stay up. 
But anyway, this is this is the first this is the first universal love that every Jew shares because every Jew, every human, in fact, wants to live. And the true life is attributed to the producer of life, to the creator, the vivifier. And therefore, every yid has this ahava, this love tashem. But it's a very mundane love because it comes from our physical life, our physical existence. And there's the other end of the spectrum. If the first love is loving God from our existence, the second one is loving God beyond our existence. And you wouldn't believe every Jew has the capability. What is the nature of this love, this desire, this connection? So there's a Zohar, another Zohar. We always draw on the Zohar for the, as the source text. The Zohar describes Moshe Rabbeinu's relationship with God. And it says that Moshe related to God like a son to a father. And not just any son to a father, but a son who loves his parents more than he loves himself to the point that he would sacrifice himself to death to save his parents. We've come across the Zohar twice before in the Tanya. Once in chapter 10, when describing the tzaddik's experience of love to God, that's what a tzaddik feels. And again, it came up a couple of weeks back in chapter 41. Rabbi, weren't all our patriarchs, although they had the same uh, feeling towards God? Yes. The Zohar chooses it about Moshe. Okay. Because he was the one that gave the Jews the Torah, and he was the first Jewish leader. But it's true. All the Avot experienced it the same way. Now this, this is a deep and extraordinary love. A love which transcends your own boundaries, your own existence. You give yourself up for the sake of another, for the connection to another. That's why the Zohar uses the visualization of Moshe because only he truly experienced it. However, says the Alter Rebbe, it is within the soul of every single Jew. Universally. And in, in the same way, we all experience a desire for Hashem to the point that we would compromise our existence for our connection to Him. It's in every Jew by his own account. And it's also in every Jew because, like we talked about in chapter 42, every Jew has a part of the neshama of Moshe. The Moshe Rabbeinu of every generation is considered to be a collective soul. A soul that divides into many sparks and into many compartments. And a little bit gets injected into every Jew. So we each have a mini Moshe inside of us. Experiencing that intense love to God. It may be subconscious. It may not be... We may not be in tune with it, but it's there. You can see how this is the other end of the spectrum. This is not finding God in your life. It's a connection to God that will transcend your life. This love, the Alter Rebbe says, not everybody will achieve, but you got to try. very interesting line that he says there he says you got to keep it you got to keep it regularly on your tongue and express it with your voice the fact that God is our father and habits become second nature you got to keep it regularly on your tongue 
and express it with your voice that God is our Father, and habit will become second nature. In other words, just entertaining the thought, just talking about it, just saying the words will get you more connected to it. And since it's the truth, God is our Father, and we do have this innate connection inside of us, we can reach it in some way. Through regular reflection, contemplation, regular meditation. He, the altar goes so far as to say, a person might feel disingenuous. He says, what am I convincing myself? What am I saying words that have no meaning to me, that I don't feel... It's all imaginary. Yeah, I go through the mantra every morning, I'm in my talis and tefillin, and I say it to myself, and I don't truly believe it. You relate to that. He does. We all relate to it, right? I think we all do. Yeah. So the Alter Rebbe says, don't worry about it. And he quotes a piece of Talmud that he quoted in chapter 16, many months ago. The Talmud says, a good thought, Hashem combines to deed. Literally, it's understood by the classic commentators as saying, sometimes it's the thought that counts. That's the typical meaning of the Talmud statement. Sometimes, let's say a person, you know, in, in the ghettos, they couldn't have matzah and pesah, but they wanted to. It was completely beyond their control. They couldn't. So in that extraneous case, extenuating circumstances, Hashem considers the thought to be like the deed. That's the way most commentators explain it. But the author Rebbe says, you look, I look at the wording of the Talmud, it says a good thought, Hashem combines to the deed. Combines means there's a thought and there's a deed and Hashem is combining the thought and the deed. If the meaning was it's the thought that counts, then, there, then there's no deed. Sure. Hashem should say he considers it to be a deed. Not that he combines it with the deed. The Alter Rebbe has a fascinating new insight into this Talmud. He says, between thought and deed, there's a missing link. Feeling. We've been talking about the three dominoes of Hasidism last time we were here two, two weeks ago. You meditate, you feel, and then you do with a passion. What happens if there's a good thought, your, your academic capacities are working well, and you're putting on the tefillin, but there's no feeling. You're, you're numb, you're detached, you're not able to arouse the heart. So the Talmud says, Machshava sometimes a good thought, Hashem combines it straight to the deed, even though you're missing a link. The Alter says the same to this Jew. I feel disingenuous. I don't feel Hashem as my father. I don't feel this incredible love to him. It's okay. Have the thought and do the deed and Hashem will combine the thought with the deed. Huh? He, God provides the bridge. It's kind of like a kid who will do something because his parents said so, but they didn't want to do it really. They did it because the parents said you must do this. Yes. Yeah, it's a forced deed, but he did the deed. He did it. 
So Talmud, ta- Talmud talks about it. I know I keep on saying matzah tonight. I don't know why I'm thinking of Pesach. But it, the Talmud says, if Goyim uh, forced matzah down your throat on the Seder night and you had no intention to eat it, you still fulfilled the mitzvah. You did it. You ate the matzah. Doesn't matter. That's the thing. Go to a McDonald's and by mistake they put a kosher burger. Oh, yeah, that was excess of the thing. I mean, are you, did you fulfill the mitzvah of eating kosher? Sure. Wait, sure. If you thought it was kosher? No, no, he says if it was actually kosher. Actually kosher. Yeah. This was the one piece Where of meat in the McDonald's. I don't know how you get end up with a kosher piece of meat in McDonald's. They forgot to put the cheese on, they got it from the kosher butcher. That was tofu, soy, please. Well, it could be. Yon meats are kosher. Actually, it's not. Only if it's cooked. Yon meats. Right. It's got to be cooked. What are you saying? The meat. It is But this is this is this is the mice. Hashem builds the bridge, like Warren said. Hashem builds the bridge. By the way, Hashem also builds the Kabbalistic bridge. Remember in chapter 40, we talked about how different deeds go to different worlds, different spiritual realms. Every time you do a mitzvah, it gets deposited in a higher realm. When you do a mitzvah with just the action, it gets deposited into one realm. When you do a mitzvah with emotions, it gets deposited into a higher realm. So the Alter Rebbe says, sometimes Hashem also builds the Kabbalistic bridge. You did a mitzvah. You couldn't feel anything, but you wanted to. You really thought about it. But the feelings didn't come. And then you did the mitzvah, Hashem built that bridge too. And deposits your mitzvahs in a higher place. So these are the universal loves. And by the way, I know that when we sit around on this table, we talk about it academically. You know, it, it, it becomes a conversation about feelings. It's kind of, it's kind of uh, oxymoronic. We talk about feeling, but we talk about it on the brain level. So if I may, I would just say, try this out. You know, the, the homework is to make this work. Tomorrow morning, palace and tefillin are on, ready to start the prayers. Yeah. Do the meditation. You, you will find that, it, that it, it works. 100%. You can start with a simple one. Hashem is my life. I'm obsessed with life. Life is really coming from Him. So positive. And you can also reflect on the fact that God is my parent. Maybe two different days. Okay, maybe tomorrow one and then the next day the other. Shabbos morning when you have more time. Now we're studying the chapter. Then we have to live the chapter. And the, Try it. And the common denominator is that these are loves that are rooted in the soul. See, the mind limits a love. When your love starts with logic, logical conclusions, it's limited by those very logical conclusions. It can only reach the extent that your logic reaches. These loves are in the neshama. And therefore they exist by everybody equally. Leave it to the Alter Rebbe to always do a little spinner. <laughs> the last couple lines of the chapter he says, but don't get carried away with the universal loves. You might think, listen, why should I get involved in an exercise? That's going to anyways end up being limited why should I reflect on the loves and the fears described in the earlier chapters that are limited by my meditation and my own capacity? Let me focus on chapter 44. Let me live, let chapter 44 be my Judaism. I will love God from the context of my life and I will love God from the context of being a parent and that's it. I'll get in touch with my neshama and I won't have to use my mind. So out there it says, never, never. 
a Jew needs both. Again, the balance. A Jew needs both. You need the universal loves, but you also need the loves that are unique and specific to you. And it's very rare that the Alter Rebbe does this. Usually I do the cliffhangers. Here he does the cliffhanger. He says, we're going to explain later on in chapter 50 that sometimes unnatural loves can exceed the power of a natural love. And I'll just give it. Unnatural loves can exceed the power of a natural love. I'll just do the spoiler. He doesn't say, he doesn't go into it, but in chapter 50, he talks about the love between a a married couple. There's nothing in nature that demands the love. In other words, naturally, the husband is born here, the wife is born there, they don't have each other. There's nothing innate about it. Yet, when they come together, the love that can be shared between spouses can exceed a love which is inborn. For example, between, a, between siblings or between parents and children. Fully. So, I guess when I say unnatural, I don't mean unnatural. The love is not unnatural. The love is just not natural. Right. In other words, the love hasn't, no, been, hasn't been wired into the programming. What about the shirt? Huh? What about a Bashert? Bashert means that your two, your two souls are linked. It's true. But yet, the, the love is not innate. That's the fact. I mean, the love is, is, is not... It's, it, 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 no, it, it has to be kindled. And by the way, not every married couple's love exceeds that, that of the natural love. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. But the very fact that you could shows that there's an advantage to a love that's created and not that's relied on. So chapter 44 is very important. Extremely important. Universally Jewish love. At the same time, never forget that it's important to also create feelings for God, although they may be limited. Although they'll be limited to your capacity and abilities. Because sometimes that can be the key to something that will catalyst you way up and way beyond something that natural love could have done. Amen. Plus, says the Alter Rebbe, Ze kol ha'adam v'tachlito. This is the entirety of man and his purpose. Leman dat et Hashem. To know and to be informed about godliness Ish, ish, kefi asher yuchal se'et. Every man according to that which he can carry. It is the purpose of man's creation on this earth that his brain get in touch with the knowledge of God. In fact, the Zohar says, that's why the world was created. We have a couple of different sources as to the reasons for God's creating the world. One of them is the Zohar, which explicitly says, begin the yishtemo daunle. It is in order that people should have a knowledge of God. So relying on your innate love would deprive you of fulfilling your purpose. Meditating with your mind will get you in touch with that which you were created to do. So what happened tonight? We established that Judaism is a balance. There's ritual Judaism and there's emotional Judaism. Typically emotional Judaism is unique to each person, but there are two universal loves. At the same time, don't get carried away with them because it is your purpose to exercise your mind in understanding Hashem. Amen.
Chaim. 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 Chaim.